Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a keynote presentation from the 2022 Chief Medical Officer Summit 360, where Moderna CMO Paul Burton discussed taking on the CMO role at Moderna and looking to the future of biotech R&D and global medical engagement. For more information about the Chief Medical Officer Summit, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Great. Yes, so thank you, Ed. Thank you all. It's a, a real honor and a privilege to be here. This is the first meeting I've actually been at face-to-face -face for like two years, so it's a, it's a, a giddy, exciting uh, time to actually be back uh, with people. Um, so look, I, uh, I have some disclosures there, just to be, uh, to be specific. Um, I have maybe 15 minutes, a few slides, and then if there's some discussion. Uh, we, we could talk about some questions. The first thing was what has been the transition like from pharma. So I joined Moderna, as Nerissa said, in uh, about June, July of last year. And I came from uh, from j and I'd been at J&J Janssen for 16 years and before that some other uh, smaller biotech. So I knew a little bit about what I was getting myself in for. But you know, nothing at all can prepare you right, for being a, number one, for being a CMO and certainly for being a CMO at a, a company like Moderna, transitioning from a large pharmaceutical company. And I think if I had to sum it up and um, kind of distill it down, what the transition has been like, you know, you all are CMOs, allied groups. It, it's very hard being a CMO, right? I mean, it's a really, really difficult job. And it's a little bit like being a parent, I think, looking back now. You know, nothing prepares you for it. You stand back at some point and you look back and think, my God, if I knew what it was going to be like. Uh, but you kind of muddle through. So it's, it's definitely been difficult. Um, and maybe it's specific to Moderna. It's perhaps a little bit about the role in general. But the pace is frenetic. You know, it's been fueled by COVID, certainly for, for me coming into Moderna. It's, it's been extremely fast because of that. But there's never really an opportunity as a CMO, I think, to kind of take your foot off the gas. In other roles, senior roles that I've had in larger companies, you can, you know, I use the word advisedly, kind of coast periodically, right? You can have a sprint and you can work incredibly hard, but you then get this opportunity to maybe just pause, think how things went, understand what's going on. Other people will pick up the slack. I think as a CMO, whether you're in a, a large company or a small company, CSOs as well, there's just never any opportunity to kind of rest and think. You're constantly in important and urgent. You can never get into just important and have some time to think about that. Brings with it huge responsibility. There's a lot of ambiguity as well, dealing with investors, uh, talking to investors, um, the media. For me, perhaps the biggest, most remarkable change, and I was media trained at J&J, &J, but has been the amount of media that I've been asked to do and that we get asked about uh, at Moderna. Uh, the, the best way to get the pulse of like, really what's going on with COVID and our vaccine is to read the comments page at the bottom of Fox News. I mean, that is where you get an unabridged <laughs> perception of what vaccination really is about. So 
but doing media is really very important. And you kind of get, I have got a little bit better at it over time, but then getting some feedback on it and what would you change? Because again, for me at Moderna, it's a very consumer-facing, consumer-focused organization right now. We're clearly in other therapeutic areas. But that kind of responsibility and ambiguity has been, has been changed. The role variability, one minute doing some R&D work, the next being medical affairs head, thinking about safety. That variability, accountability, and then finally, just needing to be a leader to a group of people who have struggled through COVID. I think Ken mentioned it earlier, uh, talking about the way that people feel burnt out. I mean, all of our teams, right, all of us, struggle, I suspect, a lot of the time with just having the responsibility of a large organization that depends on you for scientific and medical direction and leadership. So again, in a large organization, you can have a period where you can kind of move out of that fast lane, recoup, think about what you're doing, and then go back in. I think as a CMO, you're just never off. You're constantly on duty, and it's, it's harsh. Um, so that's some, just some general reflections on what it's been like uh, transitioning. It's been an amazing opportunity. I have learned more in the last nine months than truly I did in the last 19 years across Amgen and Millennium, Immunex, and then J&J for my biggest chunk. So it's been, a, it's been amazing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about data science, digital technologies, and, and things. So when I was at J&J, we launched a program called Heartline. And Heartline was all about can you engage consumers can you use digital medicine to, as, a, as a way to diagnose people with disease, come in with a solution, and then maybe change the, move the needle in, in healthcare? And that's really what I'm trying to do at Moderna, and I'll use this in a couple of other examples and some things we're doing there. Digital medicine as a concept, I think, means different things to all of us in this room. Like we probably all have a different opinion on what it means. For me, it's really about being able to quickly and accurately diagnose people with a disease and funnel them to the best course of treatment. You know, could you imagine a world where we truly seamlessly can create digital twins for people with a disease? And you know, I'm 53, if I'm diagnosed with prostate cancer. Okay, Paul, if you go down this avenue, you may have pretty good quality of life, but you know, you're gonna run into these types of potential bad outcomes, or you can go there, harder treatment. And I can then weigh these things up. If I'm 85, I might go for a different pathway. So how can you diagnose people faster and better? 92% of people who go to the Mayo Clinic for a second opinion leave with a different diagnosis, 92%. So actually, as physicians, as an industry, we're not that good at diagnosing people and funneling them to care. So I think d digital medicine can do that. And that's what Heartline was designed to do. It was our collaboration with Apple. It was meant to enroll very large numbers of individuals, uh, people over 65. They would get an Apple Watch, and we would then monitor them for detection of atrial fibrillation and hope to show that clinical improvement, clinical outcomes were, were lower. So to Ken's point earlier about can you kind of democratize and streamline and speed clinical research. I think it has huge potential. Study is still going on. We'll see if it actually can show that by wearing a watch, getting detected, diagnosed with a fib, and going off, being 
recommended to go and see a physician or an ED visit, that you actually can bring down the risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease. But that, I think, is an example of how we can use technology and bring large numbers of people, it was meant to be 100,000 people, into programs at many of our companies. The cost is minuscule compared to the kind of numbers that, you know, fully loaded, what is a patient today in a trial? It must be $70,000 up, maybe $200,000 fully loaded for oncology. Uh, so we launched Heartline. We actually, uh, the beauty of it was that we could do polls and surveys with people. Maybe it was Marcia or Elise were talking as well about getting that insight from people that you're doing trials with that you want to engage with. You know, we, we sit in our offices thinking we know the world that patients and consumers exist in, and we create a solution we think that they're going to want, and then we provide it to them and wonder why it actually doesn't take off. So if you can do polls and surveys at scale, you can get a good understanding of, of really what's going on. So we actually, in Heartline, were able to do uh, you know, a 10-day survey at the time 7,000 people answered questions. And the rigor was so, so good in the analytics that we could get out of it and what we could control for that we published a paper that talked about perceptions and likelihood to get vaccinated for COVID. This was before we had a COVID vaccine. So it was done right around the time that the Moderna and Pfizer data were coming out. And you could see this big increase in likelihood as these major sponsors were producing their data around the effectiveness of the, the vaccine. So it was very, very good. So now at Moderna, we're launching uh, something called Moderna Community. So it's kind of taking a leaf out of the Heartline book. Can you bring large numbers of consumers together? And we launched this program. People come in. They come in through an organization called Evidation. Uh, so they're a slightly skewed population. These are people who care about their health. They want to use digital tools. They want to kind of know about what's going on. So they're, they're different. But in about a seven-day period, we were able to enroll 101,000 people into this platform, just like that, without any advertising, just kind of word of mouth and some pushes out through evidation. So they come in, and the aim is that we take consumers then on a journey, you know, a journey through vaccination, through infectious diseases, mRNA. That would be my aim to do that with people. And then the goal would be, can you now bring people in to a platform where you could actually do home blood draws? A company called Your Bio has a little patch that you can put on people's arms, send it to them at home. It takes a 300 microliter blood sample and they just mail it back to you. So can you now do polls and surveys and collect you know, RSV titers, CMV titers, COVID variants of concern? from people at home and understand what they think about things. We, did, we pushed out a poll the other day. 65,000 people took the survey in three days. What do you think about Omicron? Are you scared of Omicron? Do you want a booster? Interesting questions that for a company like Moderna, it's very quick, very, very inexpensive to get that kind of high quality data. <clears throat> and then you can use it. You, know, you can feed it back into clinical development programs, I think as Marcy was saying that you want to develop. So it's Moderna community. Clinical trial innovation, 
Ken talked a lot about this. Again, when I was back at J&J, &J, we launched a program called Chief Heart Failure, Chief HF. Uh, we had a medicine called Invokana, which is a diabetes medicine. And it seemed to have an Im impact as a class in heart failure. So we did this study, we launched it. And the way it ran is that we went into, for example, Texas Medical Center or Duke or another large um, you know, managed healthcare network. And we would find people in the system through their digital records who had heart failure. We would then approach them digitally and tell them about the study. They would get cons consented on the phone. They would talk to a physician, but that was the only one visit that they ever actually had with a physician, was a phone call to be consented into this study. We then we randomized them to placebo or invocana and airdropped them the drug at home uh, through FedEx or Amazon or whoever. They got the, the blinded study drug. And then we gave them a Fitbit. We mailed them a Fitbit, so we collected steps and all that kind of stuff. And the primary endpoint was simple. It was changing something called the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, KCCQ, and they did it on a phone. So they never had a visit. They, they could record adverse events, that type of thing. Uh, we launched it. We wanted 2,000 people to come in. COVID then hit. Everybody got distracted. So we ended up actually enrolling about 500 people. And just a couple of weeks ago, they locked the database. And lo and behold, I'm sat there one morning searching through Nature Medicine. And they published the findings. They actually completed the study. It took them about two years to do from launched in March of 20, 2020. And so they completed the study. And they got in Nature Medicine, and it was a success. Showed a four to five point improvement in Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, which was statistically significant. That's a meaningful clinical improvement. And it was broadly effective across different classes of heart failure, people with and without diabetes. So they enrolled 400 people in probably you know, three, four months, five months, uh, did everything remotely, digitally, and completed a phase 3B study. I don't know what the cost was, but it would be minuscule compared to our standard you know, cost of doing a, phase, a, a big phase 3 study. Very fast, patient-centric, people loved it. So I think there's a huge opportunity. So for me, I think the, the future clinical trial innovation really is speed, um, democratization, you don't have to live in Cambridge, in Boston anymore, right? You can live in the middle of anywhere. If you can go and sign up and do a clinical trial digitally, uh, stuff is shipped to you. You can be anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world and participate. Cost is important. I was chatting to a friend of mine at the break. I mean, again, looking at Ken's numbers and thinking about <clears throat> what we do pay fully loaded for a subject in a trial. You have to wonder how sustainable our future really is, given the, the attrition that occurs. Cost is important, cost for it's translated into drug price. And then real-world evidence, Ken again talked about that, pragmatic clinical trials like the ones I described. I would say, maybe this is just me, I sit in some office thinking about the solution that I believe patients and their physicians want us to deliver. We create something. It used to take, what, three years you know, to do an IIS. 
just the contracting alone is seven months. You then roll the thing out. Two years later, it completes, if you're lucky, six months to, uh, to publication. Last summer, when we were thinking in this country about should we get a booster, um, there is a company here in Cambridge called Enference, with an N, who has a very attractive real-world evidence platform. Enference went from an idea about how uh, effective are the current mRNA vaccines in terms of preventing COVID infection. They went from an idea to a publication on the Medirec server in about 14 days. And three days later, it was being used by Dr. Fauci at a White House you know, briefing session. And that triggered, OK, let's get boosted, because there's waning of effectiveness. So in the phase 3B for the, the medical affairs world, I think it our opportunities have been so drastically impacted by real-world evidence, the speed with which you can run a study. This Moderna community, this study we're going to do, if you've heard of Picnic Health, I mean, Picnic Health can go into a database, into somebody, and get every piece of electronic medical record on that person in a you know, fully compliant, caring way. But it's, it's available. It's not cheap, but you can do it. So the idea that, well, you'll only get some of the information, it's gone. That's finished. You can get every piece of information on people with their consent. And then you can execute a study in an afternoon. And now, because of the MedRx and BioArchive servers, where you can put a preprint out within days of getting data, I mean, it's transformed and shaped, certainly COVID. I mean, the, the amount of information coming out on Omicron, we talk about it all the time. We, we use the, you know, the preprint data constantly. We talk to governments about it. So it's revolutionized how we go from concept uh, to a program and then generating data and changing practice. You know, the, the fourth dose booster that some of us over 50 are now fortunate enough to have the opportunity to get came out of what? a bunch of real-world evidence, either out of Israel, what's emerging around the world, not out of well-controlled, randomized trials. So for me, the lessons learned are uh, transition and change is not easy. Uh, certainly, as you get to 53, it gets even harder. Engaging a team, this came up in the last session as well. I think all of our teams are burnt out. They're tired. They're worn out. Everybody is looking for a new way of working. This whole idea of you know, office and, and home uh, and so trying to motivate those teams, keep people maniacally focused on the job in hand, on your development candidates, on what you have to get done during a pandemic, which we're still in, is, is really difficult as a CMO. Patient and consumer engagement. We talk about it. It used to be a sort of a glib one-liner. And many of our company websites that we've been at or at talk about patient engagement and then sort of put it over there because it's too hard. I think the days of that are also gone. Patients and consumers absolutely are controlling, certainly for me with COVID, for infectious diseases, for vaccines, are absolutely going to control choice, what they want, and the diseases that they're prepared to get vaccinated for. Um, and I think, again, being a CMO, what I've learned in this job more than any other role I had ever before, 
is that the role of a CMO really is an integrator. It's that translator between uh, um, finance, investors, your CEOs, media, how do you get your message out, how do you talk about stuff internally and externally. So being that sort of central integrator of all of those different feeds is a key role of being a CMO, I think now, having done this for, for all of 10 months. So thank you very much. It has been a, uh, a real pleasure to be here. We have just a few minutes for questions, if that's good. So thank you. Well, congratulations for your new job. Thank you, Ella. Definitely understand this is a major step from going uh, from a highly trusted big company like J&J &J to a, a, small, a smaller, smaller company. So if you could put it in, into a nutshell, so this transition from Johnson & Johnson to Moderna, what does it tell you for the, about the future of the industry? Is Moderna the type of company we, which will be the new J&J? &J? I'm not putting you on spot here, but yeah, yeah. could be. It's a good question. Look, I think, the th I think it could be. Yes, would be my real answer. I actually think a company like Moderna can. It's massively driven. You know, some of you will know our CEO, Stefan Bansal. The, the executive committee is, is hugely driven. We're small, nimble. That decision-making, that speed of decision-making, that's usually right, not always. You know, everybody makes mistakes, but that speed I think is what really redefines us. And, you know, look, we, we've uh, given 550 million doses of vaccine. We don't have one rep, not one rep, and we never will. So I think that there is a new model forming of what companies are going to look like in the future. Hey, Paul, good to see you. Ed, Ed Tucker, uh, Goldfinch. Um, the, I'm trying to sort of piece together what Ken said earlier about uh, us being a little bit slow in terms of getting our data and then getting it through the agency, getting it approved and getting it marketed. And what, what you described was the other sort of the fork in the road, which is simply getting the information out there yes. to begin with. So it's almost as though they're parallel tracks. It's one getting the information out there, priming the, the appetite that patients are waiting for the information and, and then to act on it. And COVID was a really good example of that, that people wanted to get there quick. What strikes me when, when I heard your, your talk and getting the information out there is we wait for Congresses, we wait for the New England Journal to peer review, and I think there's some good qualities in doing that because you want peer review analysis before you publish your data, and that's an expectation in the scientific community. See, how do you balance getting the data out there early and maybe being impulsive or premature, and maybe we don't always get it right as opposed to delaying but making sure we get it right and we're aligned with the regulatory frameworks, the publishing frameworks, and we wait for our congresses. Are we yes. saying that congresses are delaying us or, or are they a key ingredient to quality? Look, I think in a way they're, they're delaying us a little bit. Uh, peer review as well, right? I don't really understand why if a manuscript goes off to some unknown reviewers and a bunch of comments come back six weeks later, why that really makes something better. You know, I think the peer review process, while it, it definitely is, is important, is also probably ready for some revamping on speed. Um, for, for COVID, for infectious diseases, 
the collaboration that we've had with FDA, with EMA, you know, European Commission. I mean, we can talk to these regulators so quickly and so frequently. It has, we've been spoiled. But I think it is a sort of a foundation for what we've got to do. You know, every day that goes by that a de decision is delayed, somebody's going to die, not of COVID, but of, you know, esophageal cancer or of, um, you know, of diabetes. So what we had with COVID through necessity was speed, real focus. There has to be some learnings for that, to take that viscosity and sloppiness out of our system. We have to move on quicker. Yeah. And we have to demand it from these people who we need as well, you know, regulators, governments, whoever. We have to demand it from them as well. I think you were next, actually. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Paul. I think you spoke a bit about patient engagement and how I'm curious from a landscape perspective how biotech and pharma is going to continue to develop and collaborate with bigger technology companies like Apple. Yeah. And so curious your thoughts on how that's going to continue to develop and especially on that data-driven and analytic side and how that'll benefit the industry as a whole. Yeah, look, what I'd say just very quickly is I think the tech companies want to get into patient engagement, physician engagement. I actually don't think they have a clue how to. Um, and Apple are fantastic and they were great partners, but they, didn't, they don't really understand what health is about. So I think it's on us. We can use them and collaborate with them, but we have to give them some direction and shape them. I think maybe that is our cue. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Chief Medical Officer 360 Summit, our editorial podcasts and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you.